Okay, we'd like to welcome you to our weekly Bible study and current event study for September 16th, 2007. And the title of this message, and probably I don't know how many of these I'm going to have to split this up into, is essentially going to be the Sabbath versus Sunday. There's a lot of controversy within certain Christian or pseudo-Christian circles in regard to having to keep the Sabbath and so much so, so much emphasis is being put upon this in some Christian or pseudo-Christian circles that they're basically elevating this to a position that is almost conditional for salvation. Okay? And we're going to look at what the Bible says about this whole thing because I honestly could care less about man's opinion the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And so much of the time what we see in regard to these issues is heartfelt opinions that totally contradict the word of God. They're very, very sincere, but their zeal is misguided. And I would have to say this is one of the chief issues I have ever seen of misguided zeal in my whole life. And I have had numerous... I don't want to say confrontations about this issue, but just so many times from different sects of different religious movements emphasize this so heavily. And we're just going to really take a good, deep, biblical look at this issue to see. Now, I received an email this week, um, and it was a response to the one of the emails I had sent out. And she goes on to say, you may have not heard about the papal encyclical letter of 1998 in which John Paul, Pope John Paul, stated that those who do not keep Sunday holy, holy should be punished as heretics. End of quote. This document, written by the, the head office of the Inquisition at the time, Joseph Ratzinger, now again, he was, basically what the Catholic Church has done is they've brought back the office of Inquisition. Now this is the same office that was prevalent in the early 1500s when the Inquisition started. Okay, they've actually resurrected this office, and at the time, Pope John Paul was the one that did it, and he put it in Pope Rats, or, or, or this, it's, he's now Pope Benedict, but, but Joseph Ratzinger, because they always change their names when they do this. So, she goes on to say, um, Joseph Ratzinger is amplified in this article. I recommend that you Google quote, Rome's challenge by Cardinal Gibbons for a real eye-opener about the origin of Sunday worship. Now, number one, I'm not going to go to a corrupt, satanic organization, also known as the Catholic Church. One of the largest, it's the largest pseudo-Christian cult on earth, is all it is. It's a cult. Okay? It's another gospel. And we're going to see what the Bible says about another gospel. It's a gospel based on works. Okay? If you want to really boil it down. I am not going to go to a corrupt cult that calls themselves Christian for any type of, of answers in regard to doctrine or in regard to uh, getting a straight answer. Because the Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. The Roman Catholic Church is full of leaven. Why do I want to go to them as, as my source? So, She's basically saying that this Rome's Challenge thing by Cardinal Gibbons is a real eye-opener eye about the origin of Sunday worship. Sure, the Catholics want to take credit for everything. 
They want to take credit for the origin of Sunday. They want to, whatever whatever doctrines that's out there. I get so upset about constantly hearing about when when somebody in the secular world, particularly somebody in the secular world, will make a reference to Christianity. That reference is always to the Catholic Church. All the Christians have been have been been burning people at the stake for for hundreds of years. No, they haven't. A Bible-believing Christian doesn't do that. Okay, show me any of the apostles that were take people out and burning them at the stake. Did Jesus Christ command it? Did any of the apostles command it? Did any of the church fathers that came after them ever command that? But what they do is they totally throw the baby out with the bathwater, and they will say, well, the Catholic Church, which they'll just say the Christians. They're not Christians. They are not Christians, Catholics. They believe in another gospel, a gospel by works. And that church, pseudo-church, is so full of devils and demons, and it's going to ultimately become the whore that, that is talked about in Revelation. And basically what's going to end up happening is all the religions of the earth are going to come underneath the mantle of the Catholic Church, and we're going to have one big apostate mess. Okay? And essentially... That religion is going to morph into, in its purest form into witchcraft. Because the Bible says in Daniel that when the Antichrist comes to power, during the tribulation, that he will cause craft to prosper. Okay? And when he says craft, we're not talking arts and crafts. Okay? We're talking witchcraft. And that's another way of saying craft. Uh, witchcraft is just to call it the craft. People in the occult, that's well known. So... She, she recommends, I you know, we go to this, this going back to this letter, Rome's Challenge by Cardinal Gibbons. Uh, again, I wouldn't go to them for accurate information. And then she says, it will be when the U.S. forms an image of the beast, which I guess is, reflects the government of Rome by merging church and state, and legally enforces Sunday worship. Okay? She says that this is going to be the earmark of the One World Horse Church. Okay, they're going to legally enforce Sunday worship. Well, let me tell you something. If that were if that were to ever happen, that Sunday worship is not going to be worship of the true Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> so that that I mean, it's going to be basically worship of the Antichrist when it gets to that point. And we're talking at that point. That is going to be during the tribulation. Okay, that is not going to be prior to the tribulation. That is going to be during it. Okay, so. She's saying that this is the that this is going to be the whole earmark of all the apostasy is going to hinge upon Sunday worship, and there's so many other points that you could talk about here that in me in my estimation would would take preeminence over Sunday worship. Okay, Sunday worship would be one little aspect or tenet, at, at, and I don't even believe it's going to be. Then she goes on to say, and then. Once the Sunday worship is enforced, the Lord will withdraw His Holy Spirit from the United States, and then the earth, and only those who keep the commandments of God. Okay, so now what we have here is a works-based religion. Now, let's see, we're going to read some Bible verses that relate to this. So, so she's saying that, that the Sunday worship thing, when this happens, when, we're, when, when it's enforced... When it's put in the law, when the church and the state merge, they've already merged. Church and state have already merged. Just go and, and, and ask your pastor what kind of church. It's a 501c3 corporate entity. 
that got its creation, its permission to be created by the state, by the Internal Revenue Service. All churches are that way, 99.999% of them. They're all that way. So that, the merging's already taken place. It's just a matter of fully implementing the agenda. The merging's already there. Okay? And another thing to think about, about this. She's saying here, and, and it's not just her. It's a lot of people that say this. I was, when, when I was um, doing the Prophecy Club tour, this was one of the main things that a lot of the Pentecostals emphasized. And a lot of the people that are in the Messianic Jewish movement, or the Christian Zionism movement, or the Hebrew Roots movement, they're always emphasizing the Sabbath. And keeping all these laws that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered us from. And we're going to look at all the verses that relate to this. Because man's opinion doesn't mean anything. We have to see what the Word of God says about these things. And it was so emphasized. I, I remember at one conference, I remember overhearing a man say that basically, you know, in confidence to somebody, you know, the real reason that, that America's going to be judged is because we're not keeping the Sabbath. This this line of thinking pervades pseudo-Christianity like you wouldn't believe. And again, it's it's in the Pentecostal movement. It's in the Seventh-day Adventists. Because this is who wrote me, was the Seventh-day Adventist, this letter. Um, it is within the Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus, Hebrew Roots, and the Christian Zionism movement. We're, we're going back, in the end times, with the apostate move, we're going back into a works-based religion. And really, when you go back to a works-based religion, when Jesus Christ delivered you out of that thing, and He paid that, and, 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 and did away with that, it's a slap in his face. It's as though the sacrifice of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and faith in that sacrifice, because that's how we get saved, and we're going to see that, it's as though that's not enough. I've got to have the works too. I've got to be able to do it on my own. I've got to be able to do something to earn my way into heaven. This is what they're, they're saying here. So, just to finish this, and I'm going to read a few Bible verses here. She says that, okay, so the, when this happens when we go to the Sunday worship, when everybody's commanded to do it, through the corporate church in America, that's when God's going to finally withdraw His Holy Spirit. Well, hold on. The church and state have already been merged. And you're telling me that this issue would take precedence over 4,000 babies being aborted every day in America? You're telling me that, that this is, you know... So, so what are you saying? Do you mean that basically... Well, yeah, we're, we're aborting 4,000 babies every day in America. And all that innocent blood crying out from the land. We've got the sodomites, basically, and, and the gays with their agenda, taking over offices in high government, and, and, and shoving their agenda down our throats. We've got Hollywood flooding every part of our society with all kind of filth. We've got pornography. Do you know that the, um, the, on the outskirts of L.A., there's an area in there, and that's the pornography capital of the world. Okay, that more pornography comes out of there than any place on earth. By far more. We've got all these things going on, but, you know, it's not about that. It's just about the Sabbath. Come on. Now, if, if there was biblical precedence, that'd be fine. But, you know something? We're not in the Old Testament anymore. If all we had to go by was the Old Testament, well... 
or even the Gospels, if that's all we had to go by, because Jesus hadn't been officially, you know, when he was crucified, we have to look at what took place after the crucifixion. What did the early church do? Okay, that's what we're going to look at. So, he goes on to say, or she goes on to say, the Lord will draw His Holy Spirit from the United States, this is when we're forced to worship on Sunday, and then the earth, and only those who keep the commandments of God. It doesn't say anything about Jesus Christ in here at all. You notice that? Nothing about faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see what the Bible says about this. And then it says, including the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath, which He established at creation and reiterated to Moses. Oh, he established that creation because I guess she's inferring there because God rested on the seventh day. Okay. So again, we're making this leap of logic even though it's not even emphasized up until the time of Moses. None of the other people are told to, to keep the, the so-called Sabbath. So then it goes on to say, Only those that do all this and honoring him as creator will be spared. When by law, we are ordered by law to honor a false god on a false day of worship, the plagues will begin. This will, this will be approximately a year from now. Now we're prognosticating. So she sent me this little article, Pope Demands Respect for Sundays. I don't know, when, this is from BBC, and it says, I'm just going to read the first line. Pope Benedict has appealed for renewed respect for Sundays as he celebrated Mass at St. Stephen's Cathedral in the heart of Vienna. He was speaking on the final day of his three-day visit to Austria. In his sermon, the Pope said leisure was a good thing amid the mad rush of the modern world, but warned the dangers of becoming wasted time. Now, I read this thing, and I, I, it didn't sound threatening at all as far as you will observe. Now, I'm not saying the, the, the Roman Catholic Church isn't going to get that way, that it's not going to bear its true teeth, okay? But we're going to look at to see did the Romans actually did, did the Roman Catholic Church actually were they the ones that um, started Sunday worship? What we're going to do is look at history, and we're going to look at the Bible, and I'm going to try to stay away from my opinion, okay? Because this is this is an issue that a lot of people are getting swept up into. Now, as far as all these things that she was saying about you got you gotta just keep the commandments of God, you gotta keep the Sabbath, you gotta do this. What, what does that sound like? I mean, it, doesn't that sound like a, a works-based religion? Where where does it talk about faith in Jesus Christ and all that? I thought the faith in Jesus Christ, how we got saved. Well, let's see what the Bible says. The Bible says Romans five, eight, and ten says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood. What blood? The blood He shed on the cross for to pay our sin debt. The perfect Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the earth. Being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Oh no, let me, let me rephrase this. He, we shall be saved from wrath through the Sabbath. How asinine does that sound? Well, that's what we're being told. I mean, I'm serious. I, I, this, is a, this is a huge... If you're not aware of this, this is a huge movement within the groups that I've mentioned to bring people back under the yoke of the law and into bondage. And we're going to look at the, what the Bible says. Okay? Today. 
Then it says in the same Romans, um, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This is how we get reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let, let me clarify a point for, for those that might not understand what we're talking about with the Sabbath. Um, the Sabbath is is where they're actually worshiping or doing their day of, of rest. I believe it starts at like sundown on Friday to like sundown on Saturday, if you want to be real technical. We're going to look at what the biblical definition of the Sabbath is. Okay, we're going to look at that technical, biblical definition later. Okay, um, but just for, for now, up until then, well, that will give you a little idea what we're talking about. So, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. So it's not by works. You're not getting saved by works. You, you can't have it your way, like Burger King. Okay, It's not that way. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to the mercy He saved us. Now, these works of righteousness will follow once you get saved. Okay? The works will follow faith. But if you put faith, if you put the works before faith, which is what the vast majority of all religions, whether they call themselves Christian or not, they're trying to earn their way into whatever they call heaven. Whether they call it nirvana, paradise, heaven, whatever. A Satanist would call it hell. You know, they're trying to earn their way to wherever they're going. But it's not by works of righteousness. But according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we've said this a lot. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Faith in who? Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. And that not of yourselves. In other words, it's not of something... You, you don't get saved in and of yourselves. You, you don't have that power. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by Me. He is the door. He's the only way. So, for by grace are you saved, through faith, faith in Jesus Christ, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, a gift you either freely receive or freely reject, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is why people want to earn their way to heaven. They want to stand before their Creator and say, look what I did. Wasn't I, wasn't I wonderful? I was basically a good person. That's, the Bible says that all, we, for we are all together as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. Apart from the Holy Spirit living inside you, your best day is a filthy rag in God's sight. Period. Okay? You know, a lot of people get offended by this, but to me, I take great encouragement in this, because isn't this a better way? Wouldn't you rather just put it on Jesus Christ and, and, and let Him work through you? And let your life not be a filthy rag? Doesn't it take a lot of pressure off you? I think it does. But people don't see it that way because they're so full of pride evidently. I, I, don't, I don't understand it really. And then Colossians. Um, Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... 
Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh, Jesus Christ, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight. See, this is how we're, we go before God, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. Through his, through, we are reconciled through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the body of his flesh, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Then it says, if ye continue in faith, grounded and settled. So there's a condition that says, if you continue in faith, grounded and settled. Where is the faith in putting your faith in the Sabbath, or in good works, or in these types of things? It says, it says you're only going to be presented to God as holy, unblameable, and unreprovable if you continue in faith, grounded and settled. But what we're talking about today here is not of faith. This is of works. And then it says, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. There it confirms it again. Which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Okay, now, we read. I'm going to read some more Bible. I'm going to read a lot of Bible today. Probably about as much as I've ever read in any one particular thing. Because you have to go to the Scripture to prove this unequivocally, what we're talking about here today. I'm going to reiterate some of the verses that we said last week. Not all of them, but some of them that we said last week, in regard to the Talmud. And this is basically mingling grace with the law, the Sabbath versus Sunday. Now, Proverbs 18.13 says, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. So, if there's somebody out there that's absolutely 100% convinced that I'm wrong, and we should all be Sabbatarians, Sabbath keepers, and you've already judged this matter before you've heard it, well, the Bible says it's a folly and a shame unto you. Okay? Galatians 1.6, and then there, there's another, uh, Galatians 4.16 says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, I tell you what, you start telling people the truth, you're going to make a lot of enemies. Guaranteed. But I've said this before, my life is not a popularity contest. And, um, you know, it's more important to me to get the truth out to, than, than, than to make friends. Because the truth is typically offensive to most people. So Galatians 1.6 says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. This is Paul talking to the Galatian Christians that, that had this gigantic propensity to want to go back into the law. Okay? So he's marveling here that they're so removed, they're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ, unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you, and would pervert the gospel of Christ. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about perverting the gospel of Christ. This is what the Catholic Church has done. This is what the Seventh-day Adventists have done. This is what the Christian Zionists have done. The Hebrew Roots Movement, the Jews for Jesus, the Messianic Jews, so much of the Pentecostal movement, they're perverting the gospel. But though we, this is verse 8, Galatians 1, verse 8, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel un, unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So, do you realize these people that are doing this, they're bringing themselves essentially under a curse. And then he says it again, and as, as we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. He says it twice. So these are the two most stern warnings in 
in the New Testament regarding mingling grace with any other contrary doctrine. Which is what we're talking about here. We're talking about mingling the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with another gospel, another doctrine. And it's, it's I would say, one of, one, of, one of the most stern warnings in the whole um, New Testament. But it says in Galatians 2.3, But neither Titus, who was with me being Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. See, Titus was a Greek. Okay, they were trying to bring Titus into the law too, and, and get him circumcised and keep him under the Jewish law. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus. See, that's a liberty that you have in Christ Jesus that you don't have with any other religion that's out there. You just don't have that kind of liberty. That they might bring us into bondage. See, that's what all this is about with all this other stuff that I've mentioned here and all these other religious sects. They want to bring their membership into bondage. Because if you're in bondage, you're typically very easy to control. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. The priesthood wants to bring their laity into bondage because it's e- they're easier to control that way. They're easier to put the guilt trip on. They're easier to extract information and money from as well. Then it says, to whom we gave place by subjection. These are the people that that wanted to to spy out the liberty and bring them into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. That's how important it was to Paul. That they were actually, they wouldn't even give these people an hour in the church. They were purged out that quickly. Once they were identified. Why? That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. See, when you let this kind of thing come into your church, and it's absolutely rampant in essentially every church, because a little leaven leavened the whole lump. The churches have been leavened. When you let this happen, what ends up happening is the truth of the gospel is hindered. It can't continue properly. It becomes perverted. It becomes the gospel plus this, and this and this. Well, that's another gospel. You don't add to it or take away. That's why it's so dangerous. In other words, what does that also imply? That also implies that people aren't getting saved. Because if the truth of the gospel can't continue, how's anybody going to get saved? Well, what does that imply? That implies people end up dropping off and going to hell. Because of these types of issues. Hey, if you're putting your, if you're putting your faith in the Sabbath, and being a good whatever, do you think that, that, that you're going to get saved if that's where your faith and hope is in? Oh, it's, it's in this, I've got to keep the law, I've got to do this and that. How are you saved? Where's your faith at? Galatians 2.16 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. How much clearer can you make it than that? But that's, to me, that's liberating. That is liberty. Okay? Not liberty for an occasion of the flesh. But, I mean, it's it's a tremendous yoke that was actually removed, really, from the Jewish race first, because the Bible talks about to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But they didn't, most, so many of them didn't want it, I guess. They wanted to stay under that yoke of bondage. I guess they felt more religious that way. I don't know. And then Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you? What does that imply? Bewitching is when you put a spell, a witchcraft spell on someone. 
Who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been, have been evidently set forth crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Is that, is that how you got saved, by the works of the law? Or was it by the hearing of faith? It was by the hearing of faith, obviously. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the, the definition of faith. And then it says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is capital S, are ye now made perfect by the flesh, meaning by the works of the law? These are good, really, really good points. And this is just one book we're talking about right now. Galatians 3.6 Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the heathen through faith. It's always about faith. That's what I keep coming back to. Would justify the heathen through faith. Preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are the works of the law are under, that, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So hey, if you're going to put yourself under that bondage of the law, you better be doing it all. But you can't. You can't do it. That's why the law was given. To, to point out our transgressions and our sins. And to realize our hopeless estate, really. And then a better covenant came. That covenant was Jesus Christ. Then it goes on to say, but, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. It's always about faith. And the law is not of faith. Galatians 3.13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. He took our sin debt. He became, you know, he says he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And then it says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. This is when, when God told Abraham, when he said, Abraham, say, In thee shall all nations be blessed. This was how that blessing manifested. It was through Jesus Christ. That's how, we, that's how the blessing came. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, be made a curse for us. And then it says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Well, praise the Lord, man. That's wonderful. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. <laughs> it's always about faith on the person's part as far as salvation goes. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid! For if there had been a law given which could have given life, would that apply to the Sabbath? I think so. But that's what they're saying. They're basically hinging everything on the Sabbath. But then it gets, it gets crazier and crazier from there. Well, you, once you do the Sabbath, you got to do this. And you got to do this. It never ends. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But see, that was never possible. Okay? But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. 
all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The scripture concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Again, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.23 But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. See, afterwards. Remember, be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. It says it over and over again in different ways here. But after that faith has come, which is Jesus Christ, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Pretty redundant, right? Redundant, saying it the same thing over and over again in different ways. Well, do you think if the scripture is scriptures are this redundant that maybe God's really trying to drive this point home? <laughs> See, I mean... The book of Galatians is all you would even need to debunk all the stuff with that people are getting in the law. The only thing that they can really do to fight, but then there's, there's the book of Romans, there's Hebrews, there, there, there's all kind of things all throughout the New Testament that, that would also debunk this notion that we're saved through these works. Um, it's, it's, all through, it's all through the New Testament. And I just... All you'd really need is the book of Galatians. But what a lot of people will do is they'll say, oh, there's this big movement now to say Paul was the usurper. And everything that he wrote isn't, isn't canon. It's only, it's only really, the only thing that really applies is maybe the four Gospels. I mean, the, the, basically the Messianic Jews and a lot of them, um, well, strict Ju- Judaism will only really rely on the Torah sometimes. But then they've got all their other extra-biblical books that we talked about last week. The Talmud, and the Midrash, and, and you know, then you get into the Kabbalah, and these types of things. So it's just a very, very dangerous thing when, when you start um, adding to, taking away from the Word of God, and then, and then adding in men's teachings to boot. And then Galatians 4.9 says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain. Huh, ye observe days and months and times and years. Now, what is he, what is he reckoning this with? This is being entangled with the weak and beggarly elements and the yoke of bondage. This is what observing days and months and times and years is all about. Then he says, I am afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain. Well, I'm just going to flash ahead here. This one pastor basically says, gives you the definition of what these are. The days were in reference to the weekly Sabbaths, corresponding to the Sabbath days in Colossians 2. The months were in regard to the new moons, corresponding to a new moon in Colossians 2. The seasons were the seven feasts, corresponding to the festivals, the festivals in Colossians 2, and the years were the sabbatical years in the 50-year jubilee. So, this is what we're, we're talking about here. All of these, these, um, these things that these people were doing, in order, and what, what they were doing is bringing themselves into bondage. So Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast therefore with the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul saying to you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. 
For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law. Or you could also say justified by works. Christ is of no effect to you. None. You've denied the faith and you and you don't think you've even denied it. You think it, that, that all these people that are entangled in this yoke of bondage think that we're the ones that are, are basically on their way to hell because we're not doing this and doing that. But this Bible says Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. You're saved by grace. Who? What grace? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then it says, Galatians 5, 5, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It says it right there. All the laws fulfilled in one word, thou shalt love the neighbor as thyself. It says it right there. I don't see I don't see where it says Sabbath and all these other things that they want to put upon us. So let's look at two different takes on the Sabbath versus Sunday in early Christianity. Two different takes from two different um, authors here. First one, Sabbath versus Sunday in early Christianity. And then we're going to go to another one, which I frankly believe is, is even much more in depth. But I want to I hit on both, because I think there's good points to be made from both of these authors. The earliest Christians were Torah-observant Jews in Jerusalem. That's true. Okay, the earliest Christians were. I mean, they had just been in, in, in they had grown up in, in Judaism, and that's all they ever knew. Okay, that's it, that's it. So, they attended Jewish festivals and observed temple, temple rituals, and, it, and it, it makes reference to that in Acts 2.1, Acts 3.1, and Acts 21.20. They apparently observed the seven-day Sabbath, too, initially. However, in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, we find that almost all Christians observe Sunday, sometimes as a Sabbath-like Sabbath day of worship meetings and rest, sometimes as a day of worship and work, sometimes in addition to the Sabbath, and sometimes instead of the Sabbath. Now, do you think that if the Jews had been under, and Jesus Christ came to the Jews, primarily most of those that got saved initially were Jews, he came to his own, and his own received him not. The Bible says that very clear. To the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Okay? Do you think that if you had been, and, you're in, and you, you could go back, you know, all these generations, they had been under the law that God established, a better covenant comes, do you think there might be a little bit of a transition period there? When maybe they were kind of, understanding what was, was fully going on here in the church. So, I mean, if you just point to these few instances in, you know, Acts, where, where they were, you know, temple rituals and things of this nature, we have to look at the whole New Testament. When you look at the whole New Testament, and you look at what the early church fathers were saying, and this is before the Catholic Church was ever formed, and that's one of the key points to this, because if you, if you remember the letter that was written to me, 
it basically said that, you know, uh, this Cardinal Gibbons guy was the guy that basically talks about how the Catholic Church initiated Sunday worship. Well, hold on. If we can predate Sunday worship to before the Catholic Church was formed, which is essentially in 318 by Constantine, if we can predate that, I think we can throw out the notion that the Catholic Church started Sunday worship. I mean, it's just obvious. So then he goes on to say, how did this change in worship occur? The historical question is of interest to all Christians, but is especially relevant to those who observe Sabbath or who observe Sunday as Sabbath. This paper examines the written evidence we have now for the first and second centuries. It defends the theses. Although the New Testament does not command a particular day for Christian worship, the earliest records we have show the vast majority of Christian churches rejecting the Sabbath and assembling on Sunday. Reasons for this development will be explored. Now, we're going again, we're going to look at two different takes on the same subject, and they both bring out some good points. To begin our research into the first century Christian worship days, we look first at the New Testament. The Gospels report that Jesus conflicted with the Jewish leaders several times over Sabbath issues. Jesus rejected the restrictive traditions of the elders. He allowed his disciples to pluck grain, be healed, or he healed, he taught, and he told a man to carry his sleeping mat. And this was, this was documented in Matthew 12, 1 through 12, Luke 14, 1 through 6, John 5, 1 through 18. Now, I, we don't have time today to go over every one of these verses, but I'm sure most of you are familiar with these passages. Jesus noted that priests worked on Sabbath, that animals could be rescued or taken to water, and circumcisions could be performed. In Matthew 12, 5 through 6 and 11, Luke 13, 5 and John 7, 22. Jesus claimed to have authority over the Sabbath, to set people free on the Sabbath, and to work on the Sabbath. Matthew 12, 12, Luke 13, 6, and John 5, 17. But Jesus did not break the Sabbath since he was born under the law and lived under the old covenant requirements. And if we go to Galatians 4, verse 3. Okay, so Galatians 4, verse 3. So, even so we were children, were in bondage. When, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, Okay, so this is the dispensation in time Jesus was, was in. To redeem them that were under the law. That we might receive the adoptions of sons. And because you are sons of God, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. This is the Holy Spirit. Crying, Abba, Father. Abba meaning Daddy. Now, what does that Abba, Father imply? That implies you getting humble before the Lord, I think. Doesn't that, I mean, when you say daddy to somebody, isn't that, especially as a man, wouldn't that be a humbling thing? You'd think? Verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And all of this is always through Christ by faith. You notice this common theme in the New Testament. So, we go further with this article. It says, His activities broke pharisaic rules, meaning Jesus Christ but not the law of God. Early Christian writers did not claim that Jesus broke the Sabbath. The first disciples of Jesus were pious Jews in a Jewish culture, 
They apparently kept the Sabbath according to contemporary Jewish customs. Luke tells us that some female disciples rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Uh, that's in Luke 23.56. And that the apostles taught in the temple courts. Acts 3.1, Acts 5.12, and Acts 5.25. Paul customarily preached in synagogues on the Sabbath. Acts 13.14, 16, 13, 17-2, 18-1-11. And you can see why we don't have the, go, the time to go through every one of these verses, but these are just basically statements. And you can go to these. Um, I'm actually going to archive this up on the internet. And if you want to explore these verses further, you can do that. Uh, I'll have it in the PDF file. So, and, and again, some ways that you can use these teachings, because if you, if you approach somebody on this issue... You know, you want to have all your ducks in a row. And so much of the time, you're not going to have the teaching with you or be able to memorize and, and rattle off all the verses right away. But, if, but what you could do is just direct them to one of these teachings on the internet or you could actually download these teachings. I hear a lot of people emailing me telling me that they're listening, listening to my teachings on their way to work or, 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 or at work or whatever. They're, what they're doing is they're downloading them off the internet onto an MP3 player, and they're listening to them that way. So they have what these, I don't know if it's like the pods or iPods or whatever, I don't know. Um, I'm not really up on all that that much, but I know that you can do that. I know you can download the MP3s into those little USB drives that you can you can plug into any computer, and you can listen to them that way. So there's different ways you can you can get this information into people's hands as well. And if there's a PDF associated with one of my teachings, you can always print that off and give that too. So anyway, just a little side note there. Um, so then we are also told the disciples met daily in Acts 2.46, and that Paul preached daily in the synagogue, Acts 19.9. There is no record that Paul taught his converts to keep the Sabbath. Actually, he taught that special days were something about which Christians should not be judged. Well, where does he say that? Let's go to Colossians 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, verse 16. It says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Shadow of things to come. It says, let no man judge you in these things. Yet, these people have the audacity to tell me that essentially my salvation hinges on the fact that whether I keep the Sabbath or not. Sorry, doesn't line up with what the Bible says, and we're just scratching the surface here. <laughs> There's so much overwhelm. When I got done with this study, I got done with this study last night around 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay, and It was so overwhelming, and I hope it's going to be as overwhelming for you. When you see all of this proof, scriptural proof, early church history proof, <laughs> it's not even a, to me, it's not even a point of debate anymore after, after seeing this, the, this evidence. And then it says, and he asked the Roman Christians to tolerate differences in worship practices. This is Paul. The Roman Christians to tolerate differences in worship practices having to do with foods and days. Where does he say that? Romans 14 verses 1 through 6. So let's go there, Romans 14, verses 1 through 6. Four, 
14 verses 1 through 6. Him that is weak in faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. What does this imply? This implies that people that think you have to do these things, or you're going to offend God, are actually weak in faith. Yet most of the time, they think that they're the ones that are better. Because they're doing this and they're... But then we get into that whole pride issue of works. Look at me. I'm more pious than thee. I am holier than thou. That actually, do you know that phrase actually comes from the Bible in Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 66, I am holier than thou. But, then it says, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not, not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, Okay, now this relates to the Sabbath. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Well, Jesus Christ said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? Every, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth thanks and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So, this is just some more confirmation here, in regard to um, respecting particular days and these types of things. The New Testament gives us examples of Christians meeting on the first day of the week. Um, and we're going to really get into that later. Paul's traveling party once stayed seven days at Troas and met on the first day of the week in Acts 27. But this, was, but this was an unusual farewell meeting, not necessarily indicative of a normal practice. Paul told the Corinthians to set aside an offering on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 6.12. 16.12. 16.2, I'm sorry. But this, but this may also have been an exceptional practice rather than a normative one. In short, none of the texts, none of the texts discussed give any command for Christians to meet on or avoid meeting on any particular day. None of the texts can be used to prove that Christians regularly met on any particular day of the week. Nevertheless, there is good reason to believe that some Jewish Christians, initially, especially in Palestine, continue to observe the Sabbath. This is shown in two ways. Now again, what we're trying to do is look at both sides here. Okay? Because, I mean, if, if we're going to look at both sides, we need to look at the arguments as well. So, um, Paul was accused of teaching uh, the Jews to turn away from Moses in Acts 21.21. We're going to read this portion of scripture in a second. He was accused of teaching the Jews to turn away from Moses, which implies that the Palestinian Jewish Christians had not turned away from Moses as of yet. Again, these people were getting saved, and it says in this particular portion of scripture, but yet they're zealous for the law. So it's kind of a contradiction. But see... Listen, Christ had just been crucified. The church was in its infant stage. There was going to be a transition period. They weren't all just totally understanding of every single piece of doctrine that they would have been maybe, let's say, this is the initial infancy of the church. Let's flash forward 20, 30 years. 
the church is in a much better stable position at that point to render these things. And, and we're going to look at that in a second. Then we go to, to the other instance where you could, you could so, show that Jewish Christians, um, Jewish Christians observe the Sabbath. And there's a big, gigantic distinction between Jewish Christians and Gentiles. And we're going to look at that very clearly in Scripture. So, the, the second uh, thing where you could possibly use this is another indirect indication of the survival of the Sabbath observance among the Palestinian Jewish Christians is provided by the curse of the Christians, which, is the, which the rabbinical authorities introduced in 80 to 90 AD in the daily prayer. This curse was supposedly designed to identify Christians in the synagogues. Anyone who refused to pronounce the curse was suspected of being a Christian. The point is that Jewish Christians were still attending synagogues and may have been keeping Jewish customs, such as the Sabbath. Okay, do you understand that? Okay. However, this conclusion is limited in two ways. First, it does not address the Gentiles. Acts 21.21 implies that if Paul had taught Gentiles to ignore the law of Moses, Jewish believers would not have cared. Acts 20, and we're going to look at this in a second. Acts 21.25 indicates that Jer the Jerusalem decree had already been enough. Well, let's look at this. Now, this is something you never, ever, ever hear preached on. What we're going to look at right now. I've never heard it preached on. Acts let's go to Acts 15.22 first, because that's more of the foundational passage for, um, for Acts 21. So, if we go to Acts 15... Acts 15.22 Acts 15.22 uh, Hold on here. Okay, this is the early church. Okay. The early Jewish church fathers convening in regard to what do they do about the Gentiles in regard to what should be required of them. Okay, so if we just start at verse 17. Let's, let's start there instead. 15, 17. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord. Actually, I tell you what. You know what? Let's go back even further. Let's go back to the start. And let's just start at verse 1. And the certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Well, this is no different than the Sabbath issue. No different at all. It's a works-based salvation. Okay? What is, so what happens here? When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute, disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So this was really, really a serious issue for the early church. Well, are we, are we saved by circumcision now? No. Well, Paul and Barnabas, th this was serious. They went up to um, Jerusalem under the apostles and the elders about this question. Well, it sounds like some of the apostles were even swept up in this initially. What does that tell you? That just tells you, again, we're at the infancy of the church. The church wasn't just purely, you know, understanding every tenet of the grace they had been set free in at that point, okay? There was a transitional period, okay? We're all human, we can't just expect them to be understanding of everything, every intricacy Jesus Christ tried to convey to them on this earth. 
Okay, would you be? If you had been in that kind of bondage all your life? I mean, with the law and everything? It would be a tough thing to break away from. So verse 3, And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees. Now, who were the Pharisees? They were, you know, they were with the Sadducees. They were like the religious Jews, the ones that were really caught up in, in the bondage. They had added to the word of God, put upon burdens that no man could bear. And there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed. Now, that's important because it says which believed. Meaning they were actually saying they were Pharisees, but they were believers in Jesus Christ. Whether they were truly, truly believing... I don't know. I don't know. Did they continue steadfast, grounded in the faith? Were they like the seed that, that fell on stony ground that took root for a little while and then withered away? The Bible says there's basically four types of people. You know, is the seed going to fall on good ground and, and bear 30, 60, or 90 fold? Is it going to fall on stony ground? Or these types of grounds. That's a whole other teaching. But there rose up certain sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them. Who? Who's them? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. It says that even in verse 3. It was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Well, if this is the case, then, then, then what the Lord Jesus Christ did in the, on the cross isn't applicable to, to anyone. But the Pharisees says, oh, you got to do it. And the apostles and the elders came together for to consider this matter. And when they had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. Well, let's reiterate this again. How did all this happen? Through faith. How do you get saved? Through faith. And when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you. Okay? And God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as He did unto us. He's talking about, even as He did unto, unto us Jews, He did it to the Gentiles. And then verse 9, And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Here we go again with faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's a, this is in reference to the law, and I think a lot of the extra pharisaical laws as well. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. The Bible says, for in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, for we are all one in Christ. If ye be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Then all the multitudes kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And then we go a little bit further. Let's go up to verse uh, 17. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord. I think when they mean residue, there's going to be a remnant. A residue would imply a remnant. There's always a remnant that gets saved. But it's never the majority, ever. It's never been that ever in the history of mankind. The Bible says, Narrow is the way which lead, lead to life eternal. Few there be that find it. Many are called, but few are chosen. 
that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them. This is in reference to the Gentiles. This is the early church Jewish fathers talking about the Gentiles that were converted. Okay, so we have the right context here. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them, the Gentiles, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, meaning they got saved, but that we write unto them that they abstain from the pollution of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now, I've done whole teachings on you don't eat things with blood in the meat. Okay? This is one of the reasons I base that off. The Bible does say that that's a perpetual covenant with, with, throughout all the generations, that you abstain from, from not eating blood. Okay? Or anything with blood in it. And they hide blood in a lot of things. So it's important that if you're going to make meat, that I believe that you purge the blood if you can. One of the easiest ways to do that is with vinegar and salt. And make sure you're cooking the meat enough. Now that's a whole other study, okay? But it says it right here that this is what the early church fathers commanded the Gentiles that were converted. Does it say anything here about a Sabbath, keeping a Sabbath? I don't know, maybe I missed it. Well, you know, what about like growing your beard a certain way and wearing clothing that doesn't have two types of materials? I mean, we really want to go back to the law. Let's do it all. Let's get really religious. You know? be like the Amish and the Mennonites. You know, we all feel real religious that way. Oh yeah, a little brew cream religion. Well, no, it says abstaining from the pollution of idols. Back then, idols were a gigantic thing. I mean, literal idols, okay, that they were worshiping. And from fornication, fornicating, okay, sex outside of, of, of a biblical marriage, essentially, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now, if you strangle an animal, the blood's going to be in the meat. It's one of the byproducts of strangling an animal. Strangle it and just leave it there. Well, where's the blood go? Can't get out of the carcass. When you, when you, when the, the way that they make kosher meat is they'll actually slit the throat and hang the animal up and let the blood all drain out. Okay? And even then, you know, there's other things you can do to, to purge blood, but, um, See, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it's not something that we ever want to ingest. Okay? There's many physical points about this. And again, I've done a whole, I've done a whole other teachings on this. Um, and I don't have time to get into today. I just thought it was a kind of an interesting side note there. So let's go further. Verse 21. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day then pleased it then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, uh, namely Judas, surnamed Barnabas. Uh, let's go a little bit further here. Okay, verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you, the Gentiles, no greater burden than these things that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. This was about the extent of any kind of 
verbal commandments that were put upon. Now, granted, yes, there's definitely things that, that uh, you know, the tenets of the uh, of the Ten Commandments, but we're going to look at the Sabbath commandment. You know, obviously, sin is sin. Okay? A lot of that went without saying. A lot of it, basically, your conscience bears witness. And if the Holy Spirit's living inside you, you're going to have a conviction of your sin. Okay? So... This is, the, this is the first part. Now, let's go to Acts 21. And I'll be honest with you. Acts 21 is a little bit dicey. I've never heard anybody preach on this chapter. Ever. Not to say I think I'm better. But I'm just saying, I just don't hear it preached on. Because this is a dicey chapter. But remember something. We're in the formative, transitional stages of the early church. Jews that had been in bondage... By the law, generation after generation. I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm just saying it was a form of bondage that they were under. It was a yoke that they were under. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees had made it all the more worse. Okay? Is the law sin? God forbid. The Bible says that. I had not known sin, yet, but by the law would show me. The law was our schoolmaster. Remember that. Before Christ came. So Acts 21, verse 17 through 28. And we were come to Jerusalem, and the brethren received us gladly. And this is Paul. And the day following Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when, we had, when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Remember, Paul went to the Gentiles. It was ironic that Paul went to the Gentiles, and Peter went to the Jews. Because you'd think Paul could relate to the religious Jews a lot better, because he was the, you know, the... the what it was, he was like a Pharisee and, and all these other things. He was like of the stock of, you know, all these. He had this, this pedigree that Peter didn't have at all. But that's how God chose to do it. So if we go further, uh, verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. What does that imply? They believe in Jesus Christ. There's thousands of Jews there that believe. And they are all zealous of the law. Well, what? Doesn't that sound like a contradiction, kind of? They, they believe, but they're zealous of the law? How do you get... That's why I said, this is a dicey chapter. This is a landmine chapter. This one. Okay? That's why I think most preachers probably want to stay away. be honest with you, when I read it, I wanted to stay away from it. <laughs> Okay, I have a really good good footnote here. Not a footnote, but a, just a Bible reference. So, how do we explain this? Well, number one, again, remember where we're at. We're in the early formation of the baby infancy church. Okay. And this guy, this, you know, it says, When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, they're talking to Paul, how, how many thousands of the Jews... There are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Okay, how do we explain that? Let's go to Romans 10, just verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, and this is Paul, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, that they might be saved. Okay, this is Paul talking about the Jewish race. Okay, his brethren. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. 
For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, which is what many false religions do, which is what we were talking about today, establishing your own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Okay. So, let's go further. Verse 21. And they all informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now, this is what they're saying to Paul. And they are informed of thee, these, these zealous Jews that ho- supposedly believe, okay, they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. Now, this is a Jewish Christian talking to a Jewish Christian here. Okay, that's the context of this verse. So, hey, Paul, we're hearing that, uh, yeah, this is wonderful what you're doing with Christ. This is great. But, you know what? We're, we're hearing that you're telling these, these Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, uh, and either walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. In other words, we want to bring all these zealous Jews together to hear what you have to say. Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, them take and purify them, them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads. Now this was a Jewish, I believe this was the Nazarene vow here. Okay, Jewish Nazarene vow. And all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou, but that thou thyself also walk, walkest orderly and keepeth the law. Well, does it sound like Paul's between a rock and a hard place here? We, we listen, Paul. We know that you keep the law and you tell everybody to get circumcised, whether they're Jew or Greek. We know that. We know all the stuff we heard was not true. So we, here's what we're going to do. We, we got these four guys. We're going to have all you take a vow. We're going to have them show how zealous of the law that you are. And you're going to take this vow, this Nazarene vow. And then we'll straighten everything out, you know. They'll see how zealous you are. And, and, and they'll see that you walk as orderly and keep us the law. But then they go on to say, as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangling, and from fornication. So this confirms those other two verses we just read in Acts 15. Now this is a Jewish thing here. Okay? And then it says, And then Paul took the men, and the next day purifying himself with them, entering into the temple, to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Paul did it. Paul did it. He didn't look like he even argued. And then it didn't matter because if you if you if you read verse twenty seven, and when the seven days were ended, the Jews which were in Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, "Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place." And further brought the Greeks also into this temple and have polluted this holy place. Oh, so they brought Greeks into the to temple and it polluted it. And he, it didn't matter. It didn't matter this vow. I don't think God was going to let this. 
let him get away with it. Acting as though, you know, and in Numbers 6, we can learn about these different Jewish vows that they had. Okay? Now, please, again, remember the fact that we're in the infancy of the church, and that the apostles messed up many times. Didn't Peter put his foot in his mouth after Jesus Christ was here? <laughs> Didn't Paul have to rebuke him before all, before that? Was Paul human? Was he capable of making, you know, listen. Maybe the Lord, maybe the Holy Spirit convicted Paul to do this in order to reach them. Because God's going to have grace on somebody when this is all they've ever known. I don't know. I, I'm not the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm just, I want to present all sides of this story. I want to be, I want to, I want to try to not just steer away from certain scriptures and say, well, I'm only going to show you what I want. No, these are the hard scriptures. You know, I don't have, you know, pure, wonderful answers for every, I, I don't know, I wasn't there. All I can do is kind of theorize. But there's enough else in the Bible where we're going to see this issue crystal clear. Okay? But I will say this, it's very, very clear on the Gentiles. Even back then it was very, very clear. It wasn't that you get circumcised and you got to observe the Sabbath and all this other stuff. As touching the Gentiles, which believe we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing as far as keeping the law, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. End of story. Okay? So let's go further. Now, let's go to the, 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 the second part. This is the Sabbath versus Sunday by a guy named Mark Martin. I think this is even better than what we just read. I, I think that we looked at more of the controversial things. Now we're going to look at more of the, um, more of the, contra, the uh, confirmatory passages. So, the Sabbatarians, the people that say you've got to keep the Sabbath, ask for one text in the Bible that commands Sunday worship. Well, he offers up Leviticus 23... 5.11, where this is basically a, um, the, the one thing I can't stand is that he doesn't use KJV verses in here. Um, but, Leviticus 23, verse 11, I'm just going to read a couple of these. I, I don't want to, I don't think we need to dwell on, on this particular component of it. But 23, verse 11 and he, the priest, shall wave the sheave before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. Okay, it's after the Sabbath. Now, this is a holy day. Okay. Read on specifically looking at Leviticus 23.15. Leviticus 23.15, which says, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Uh, so if we read this verse, this is the Feast of Pentecost. It is one of the compulsory feasts of Israel. Okay, and it was on the day after the Sabbath. Okay, so again, they're saying, well, prove to me that, that, that you know, it's just not all about Saturday, or, or basically Friday evening to Saturday evening, which is considered the true Sabbath. Note on the day of Pentecost, a Sunday, God's people were commanded to worship. And that's in Leviticus 23.21. Leviticus 23.21 And you shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be an holy convocation unto you. This is, this, this is on the day after the Sabbath. You shall do no servile work wherein it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout all your generations. Okay? That's Leviticus 23.21. 
if you think this is only applying to ceremonial days, Leviticus 23 starts out talking about the weekly Sabbath. It is, uh, um, in Leviticus 23, 1-4, it is called an appointed time, a holy convocation, along with the other feast days of Israel. No distinction is made by God between these holy days and the weekly Sabbath. He concludes them as all being holy. This would mean that under Old Covenants, the First Fruit Sunday and Pentecost Sunday were as holy and sanctified as Saturday. Or the, or, the, or the technical Sabbath. Okay, so if you think about, if you think this only applies to Israel, that's our whole point. The Ten Commandment covenant, the Old Covenant, was made with Israel and not with the Gentiles. Now, let's, let's just look. This is Exodus 31, verse 13. Exodus 31, 13. Okay. 31, 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Now this is, basically we could entitle this portion of the scripture, A Sabbath is a sign between Jehovah and Israel. Speaking, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel saying, Verily, my Sabbath ye shall keep. Who is this too? The children of Israel. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Now remember, the Bible says that, that the Jews seek a sign and the, Israel, and, and, and the Greeks seek, seek after knowledge. Okay, this is the way the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with Israel almost from its inception, through signs and wonders. That's the way he chose to do it. Okay? This is what they were used to. They were used to signs. Okay? So, it says, For it is a sign, the Sabbath is a sign, between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. Um, so the Sabbath is a part of the law connected to Israel as a sign. Okay, uh, how is it a sign? Well, on the seventh day, God rested. I believe this is this is how the Lord is tying this into His creation. Okay, of the world, this type of thing. So you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For so. For whosoever doth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So, hey boy, you're going to keep the Sabbath. You better do it the right way. You, if you don't do it the right way, you're going to be put to death. No work. We're going, to, we're going to really get technical on this and see what it really, everything you can't do. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Says it again. The, wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. That's confirmation there. This is how the Sabbath relates. And he was refreshed. Now, this is why the Jews were basically in there, uh, what we just talked about in Acts um, really 21. The Bible says here that this is a to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. 
I'm not going to get super dogmatic about, about a Jew keeping Sabbath. I'm not saying you better be doing it not to be saved. Okay. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does say, it's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Okay? So, I can understand how the Jews were looking at this saying, yeah, well, we gotta, we, we, we gotta bring these Gentiles under this bondage because we're doing it. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get super dogmatic about this particular portion, whether the Jews have to keep this or... I'm not going to do that because I do not want to get veer off and say, okay, it's not about faith anymore. It's about keeping the Sabbath with the Jew. It's not. I, I don't believe that. But it does say this here, and I think for a Jew, he's really going to have to search that particular matter out in regard to the Sabbath. Okay? Um, if we go to verse 18, And he gave unto Moses, which he had made an end, communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tablets of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Okay, now let's go further. Now, when the Council of Acts 15, which is what we already read, Acts 15, convened to determine what the Christians must observe... Sabbath keeping is conspicuously absent. Remember, things strangled, don't eat any blood, no fornication, these types of things. Sabbath keeping was totally absent, if you notice in that portion of scripture. Peter exhorts the leadership of the church to not place the Gentiles under the law. We've already read Acts 15, I don't want to read it again. The final judgment of the Jerusalem council contains no reference to the Sabbath keeping. Circumcision was discussed and deemed unnecessary in verses 5, 6, and 19 and 20. If Sabbath keeping were to be an essential part of the new covenant relationship with God, it would have been mentioned in the discussion because it would have been an unfamiliar practice to the Gentiles. Sabbath keeping was not even discussed because it is not a requirement for new covenant believers. Notice that the Holy Spirit told them not to lay upon the Gentiles any greater burden than those essential things. Obviously, the Holy Spirit did not think Sabbath keeping was an essential thing anymore, and this is confirmed in Acts 15, where we talk about the, uh, the Gentiles. We've already read that. Now, here's another point with, with um, celebrating or, or, or the Sabbath versus Sunday. The seven post-resurrection appearances of Christ show that Jesus purposely chose the first day of the week to meet with his disciples to encourage and exhort them. 